Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk and I'm joined by Tim Curtis. G'day, Tim. G'day, Ben. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Pretty good. Not shabby. That's good. Not bad. <laughs> That's good. Remain positive. I'm pleased. Carry are, on. Are you used to being the dumbest person in the room, Tim? Yes, but I do not open my mouth and remove <laughs> all doubt. <laughs> We we live by this philosophy that it's better to have people uh, to stay quiet and have people thinking you're stupid than to to opening your mouth and removing all doubt. Um, so we we try to apply that um, as often. I think we're about to be the dumbest people in this virtual room. Our guest this week, David Olney, is a lecturer at the University of Adelaide, and he lists his areas of expertise to include government, defence, private, applied thinking, operations research, functional neurology, civil Mm. military relations, counter-terrorism, philosophies of violence and existential philosophy. Mm. Are you going to be able to keep up? I think our combined IQ is a rounding (laughs) error to his IQ. (laughs) David's a fascinating guy. Um, He runs his own podcast and indeed we're running this interview in conjunction with his podcast, Blind Insights, which we can thoroughly recommend. He explores all sorts of different topics through the the lenses of complex problem solving, through the lenses of applied philosophy, and is a cracking listen. But in addition to that, he's also consulted really widely. And um, one of the things that I think is really brilliant about David is that Everything he does is applied. He's got this wonderful theoretical, philosophical, academic basis, but he's really interested in applying these. And he's done that for organisations such as ASIO, um, the Defence Department, uh, and the the wider government in Australia and overseas as well. Also, don't forget that he plays the guitar, and also he is a conservatorium-grade violinist. And Tim, did we mention that he's also blind? Yes. Are you feeling pretty... (laughs) <laughs> unqualified to, to go into this. Which is classically limitless, isn't it? You know, he um, he learned, so he was born blind mm-hmm. or with only 5% Five. of sight and uh, he's taught himself to do everything through that. Didn't hear him complain once. No, and has really made a lifelong uh, sort of habit of going a little further and that's exactly what we're after when we choose our guests. Inspiring stuff, and let's get on with the show. I've been sitting, watching you grow as I just stay the same. I'm starting to think that I'm going nowhere fast. I feel the pressure building, falling upon me. I'm buried how this isn't a game that I'm playing. Oh, it's time to end this now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this very special edition. This is Blind Insights Meets Unforgiving 60. I'm joined in the studio, appropriately socially distanced, with my co-host Tim Curtis. G'day, Ben. And of course, I'm Ben Pronk, and we're both joined by David Olney. David, how are you? Very well, thank you, gentlemen, and thank you for tolerating all the technical mayhem at my end this morning. David, we've provided a bit of an introduction, but I don't think we've done you justice. Maybe we could start this episode by providing a bit of your backstory. We know you were born in Adelaide, but the rest up till this point is a bit of a mystery. Can you fill us in on how you got to where you are today? Oh, wow. Okay, I'll try and keep it short because I've done so many different things being blind to try and work out what things I really like doing. So I tend to start a lot of things, get them to the point where they're going, well, get bored or see a problem and move sideways. Uh, (laughs) So short version, grew up a farm boy, which meant grew up being quite 
comfortable being blind because I learned to be physical and to do things on a farm and to work out how to work around being blind in what could be a dangerous environment. You know, animals, barbed mm. wire, electric fences, all those kind of things blind people would normally hide from. I sort of treat it as the normal part of my day. And David, uh, sorry, you were blind from birth? Born with about 5% vision. They had the brilliant idea of keeping me in the sort of large print, close circuit TV, mega magnification world, which meant, you know, all that stress on my eyes pretty much trashed my 5% vision by the end of year 12. Right. So that was a barrel of laughs yeah. to go. It's got me through year 12 and it's now in even worse shape than it was in. Oh dear. Uh, and, and having not learned at Braille, it was like, all right, do I double down now at you know, 17 and learn Braille now? Hmm. <laughs> so yeah, fun times. So get to the end of high school. Uh, everyone who's taught me is convinced you should go to university. You should become a lawyer. I'm like, mm, I don't believe in myself as much as you lot believe in me. I need to do something where I can always pull back and earn money. So went and started to train to be a sports injury masseur, going, it's my hands, it's my ability to assess bodies. That's something I can always earn money at. That sounds a good idea. Mm-hmm. Thought that's only part-time at the same time. Thought, right, I've always wanted to play guitar. Let's start guitar. So got an amazing teacher in Adelaide who taught a few blind people, and he said, the sooner you get through the first hundred hours, the better you'll be and the less pain there'll be. So I thought, we'll stuff this and got through the first hundred hours in two weeks, which was kind of a dumb David thing, but also set a lifelong trend. Find out how long the minimal pain of anything lasts and smash it out as fast as possible using proper discipline and a proper process to make sure it's actually meaningful practice. You know, not just pain. Um, Worked out very quickly that being a guitarist was exciting, but that the lifestyle is not very healthy. Worked out very quickly that being a sports injury masseur bored the crap out of me. That you know, Once you've helped people recover from injuries from sport or gardening, well, what else is there to really learn in that job? Um, so I had to do the calculation of, oh dear, what do I do now? Worked out that there was a physiotherapist course available in the UK that had been modified so blind people could qualify, looked at what it would cost to do it. Kind of mum and dad said they'd find the money for me at 18, and I went, oh, I can't be that in debt for something that maybe will be awesome, maybe won't. Started university, discovered I was good at it but didn't know what to do with it, got bored of guitar, started taking violin, uh, got to conservatorium-level violin in four years. Uh, sort of juggled violin and uni until the point where I got a PhD scholarship to do a PhD in political theory simply so I could stash the cash to potentially go to London and play violin um, to then only find that the combination of the violin bow and the cane, you know, from the white cane from being blind, had pretty much trashed my wrist, the two things together, and I either had to conclude either I'm going to have to walk away from violin or I'm going to have to have major surgery on my wrist, which will mean both the cane and the violin will be hard on it. So I had to walk away from violin and then a situation where I was doing a PhD I really wasn't interested in, um, but I'd stashed a lot of money. And someone said, well, why don't you start tutoring? And then started tutoring in international relations and went, now this I like. This is not about what I do next. This is about empowering 17 18, 19, 20-year-olds. This is really good. I love this empowering thing. Mm. Uh, and everything's pretty much grown from there. So from that, you know, became interested in the complex problem solving, became the person within the politics department at the University of Adelaide who was always interested in security because I had friends who'd gone through Adcra and done Troon. So it was personal for me. It was affecting the people I cared about. Um, and sort of then eventually with a friend who's an Air Force officer, developed a complex problem-solving course that got us sitting at Tobruk Lines and then Special Operations Headquarters at Jock, training really amazing people to give them more ways to think about how to solve problems. That is an awesome synopsis, and we definitely want to come back to 
complex problem solving, industrial relations, headquarters jock. Actually, I never want to go back to headquarters jock, but we want to talk about it. It's a very strange place from a blind perspective. It's like probably big flat ground with covered walkways <laughs> and then these strange big buildings that feel like boxes where most people go down and only a few people go up. It feels very much it, like it's, a, it's very a, strange. a maximum security prison as you're walking the Green Mile into the, the, um, through the security barriers. Some but, could argue that blind is a good metaphor. <laughs> what but I would be, argue is they're so busy they get wrapped up in the small things mm-hmm. that crash in their desks nonstop. And the, Urgent, the biggest problem, but not important. Yes. The biggest problem I saw there is everything is hurry up, but there's no time to go, hang on, of those 10 things, which two deserved 80% of the time and the other eight could have been ditched? <laughs> yeah, I, I think both Tim and I have lived that dream to a certain extent in the past and we, we're keen to circle back around. But I'd like yep. to start by asking you, you list as one of your areas of expertise the philosophies of violence. I'm really interested in learning a bit more about that to kick off this conversation. Okay, again, bit of history. Um, doing my degree, most of what I'm learning is really quite boring. Then all of a sudden, turns out, I think it's the equivalent of probably second year of my degree, there's an amazing Greek philosopher comes to Adelaide as a part-timer, a guy called George Vasilikopoulos. One semester teaches a subject on anarchism and libertarianism. The other semester teaches a proper hard-boiled Marxist subject. And George has had to flee Greece as a teenager because he was so politically active that the colonels wanted him dead. So he teaches 19th century political philosophy, nihilism, anarchism, Marxism, as if these are things that you use to weaponize the youth to change the world, not as just dead thought. And you realize how many thoughts, how many philosophies can have a utopia at the end, but can provide a dozen ways to justify gratuitous violence. Um, from that, got really interested in the same way you know, existentialism was due, you know, used during World War II within the French resistance. You know, how Camus used existentialism in Algeria to define you know, the future of Algeria potentially. And then just time and time again, you see any idea that promises a utopia at the end can be... You know, Bruce Hoffman has referred to it as instrumentalization. You take an idea that offers you a utopia at the end and you instrumentalize that violence is legitimate now because we'll get a utopia out of it after. And there was a British anarchist in the 1790s, you know, early 1800s called William Godwin, who watched France and went, you can't ever let the violence genie out of the bottle or the violence genie is forever out of the bottle. What you have to do is instead work out how you get change without making violence normalized or you won't ever stop the normalization so he started using the phrase of evolutionary revolution and his argument was that he wanted the uk to go down the evolutionary path and yeah there was some pretty good violence in the uk in the 19th century Mm. you know like the duke of wellington unleashed heavy cavalry on the streets of london i think in 1828 it was essentially london's tiananmen square but it wasn't all the time and it was such a shock and awe use of violence, it pretty much convinced the union movement and the middle class in England to push for reform one incremental gain at a time to keep violence at bay. So what is the role of violence in contemporary society? I think Max Weber said that um, we should restrict the use of legitimised violence to only security forces, law enforcement, militaries and that sort of stuff. Do you believe there's still a role in that? In a, Is there such a thing as legitimate violence? I think there probably is. And for my model, I take the Duke of Albino, who was probably one of the most dangerous Renaissance Italian mercenaries. Like he was so hard-boiled that when the French invaded Italy, they went round his lands because they concluded that just just annoying him and his guys would be enough to slow them down for weeks Hmm. and that the body count would be so high, why do it? And the Duke of Albino was a very simple and very interesting guy. He had the most amazing-looking palace, but it doesn't look fortified, and yet no one's ever managed to take it. 
And he had a simple rule. Any political dissident, any philosopher, any artist could come and hang out, write, read, make art. The only rule is don't try and have sex with his daughters and don't show disrespect to the family. And he was this incredible combination of he could write quite amazing poetry, he could talk to you about anything, but if you crossed him, he'd kill you. And the rules were very clear. He'd balanced an incredible level of enlightenment philosophy, but not forgotten that fundamentally humans have an incredible capacity for violence. Uh, and I think probably the closest modern perspective to him is Eric Greitens, uh, an ex-seal with a PhD from Oxford, who wrote a book called The Heart and the Fist, where he says you have to bal you know, balance courage and compassion, and you have to have equal measures of both because courage on its own tends to end badly and compassion on its own tends to get wiped out by violence. And I think I agree with both of them that we need to aim for a balance between the two. So, you know, Max Weber's point is to surrender too much power, hoping that the political system will be kind. Mm. Whereas what we see historically is very little evidence of political systems being kind. And so part of what I've heard you speak about before is uh, keeping that open mind and in many cases embracing dissidents. Um, you've quoted before Winston Churchill uh, sort of embracing socialist thought, um, unconventional people like Alan Turing during World War II, that uh, the utility of, of their thinking and, in fact, the very fact that they are thinking in a different way to the establishment is very useful. But in many ways we see that as a, as a difficult thing for, for modern institutions to do. Yeah, and this is the thing. The more we have the same media, the same access to social media, the more we're actually you know, getting same old, same old. So it's harder to find the space where the weirdos can hang out, develop their skill sets, and then power can reach out to them when they need them. So it's such a problem now. You're like, I think it was 1946, uh, Karl Popper described the university's principal role as sustaining orthodoxy. And like this is before the golden age of open universities in the 60s and 70s, and he already thinks its principal role has become maintenance of orthodoxy. This is a real problem, and it's a problem constantly for power. Power has to be used to you know, manage good outcomes for society as a whole, but to also leave the door open to you know, be able to deal with the discomfort of people who don't agree, people who behave differently, because at some point you're going to need their flexibility and their nuance and their subtlety and their diversity. And, you know, if we get even a kind conformity to such a level that we lose confidence, we'll be in a worse situation later. Hmm. David, before we leave the issue of violence, I'm interested in your opinion alongside Dave Grossman's. And Grossman is at the moment talking about us having never lived in a more violent world. And I isolate combat operations from violence, more domestic mm. violence. Uh, one of the things he says is that we're inoculating the young through these violent video games. And the reason why murder or homicide rates aren't increasing commensurate with violence isn't because there's less violence, it's because we've got more or better medical skills. And in fact, he also cites the use of tourniquets by first responders. If they use 20 to 30 a day, I think they're around about halving the murder rate in the US. Would you agree that we're now living in a more violent world? I find Grossman incredibly divisive. Mm -hmm. uh, his early work on killing on combat are fantastic books to show that in human history, the majority of modern humans since we've been analysing this, really beginning with Napoleon's studies on his top infantry, going, if he put his top infantry in front of targets, they were incredibly good. Put them in battle, they went from 90% accuracy down to 10%. So he'd worked out very early in his career to trust light artillery over riflemen any day of the week. So we roll through to Gettysburg where thousands of rifles were found on the battlefield at the end of the battle that had been loaded and not fired up to five times. So if you'd pulled the trigger, it would have exploded in your face. Mm -hmm. We move on to the studies at the end of World War II where you know, the estimate is that only 20% of soldiers in World War II took accurate shots. They decide to change this by Korea, they're at 50%. By Vietnam, they're above 90%. There's some estimates in Baghdad, 2003, 
the Americans are at 97% accurately taking shots. PTSD goes up at a commensurate level with accurate shots. So historically, I think something Grossman misses, and I wish I could find an author who's worked on this, but I can't find it. There's a difference between organized violence and enhancing the capacity to manage and apply you know, organized violence. Mm. On the other side, domestic violence, uh, sexual abuse, you know, child abuse seems to have gone through the roof. So there's something in humans where we can do violence to each other fairly easily. I'm not sure how easily we historically can kill each other. And now we have the modern world where computer gaming has provided more operant conditioning for the use of weapons and targeting. Um, so we're now in a weird place where that historical capacity for non-lethal violence, but to do lots of harm, to exert powers over other, is now combined with better operant conditioning, meaning that whether they're meant to kill or not, they're more effective at applying violence. So I think Grossman got a lot of early stuff right, but this thing of trying to convince American cops to be more revved up than they've ever been, which seems to be resulting in the death of a lot of young men, I'm not sure where his career or his influence are going to end. Hmm. Okay, changing topic slightly, let's do a hypothetical. We've just crested 9-11. You're in Tampa as a strategic planner and you're uniquely placed because people are relying upon you and the optics through which you see things, David, to cast ahead on the way that we should conduct military operations or the wider strategic piece in Afghanistan and Iraq. What would you have done differently if you were placed in that position and you could offer that advice? Yeah, this is the thing of trying to work out how much of what you think is hindsight and how much is what you knew at the time. Mm. So I'm going to try and go with what I knew at the time. And what I knew is that philosophy of violence says you can't use violence to get utopia. Human security in the 90s tells you that until you secure people's lives, you can't get anything better than that. So on Maslow's pyramid, you can't sort any more than physical security and you know biological security until those things are so normalized that people have time to think about bigger things. So I think the, you know, the, the big thing to me would have been to realize, okay, you know, there's a problem that has come out of the Soviet-Afghan war. And that is that the Muslim world, you know, like the Sri Lankans, has worked out that suicide bombing works effectively and is the only way to resist, and that resistance is a form of redemption. And that you cannot directly fight people who see resistance as a form of redemption and who see suicide bombing as a way to, at the very least, say, well, I can do this to you. And when we look, it didn't be, you know, begin with Muslim suicide bombers. It began with Tamil suicide bombers who didn't believe they were getting to the promised land by blowing themselves up. They simply believed they were fighting for their families. And I think I would have wanted to lay out those lessons and go, the more violence we use, the stronger the resistance will be. We need predominantly human security ops with an absolutely ruthless counterterrorism capacity to take out the people who would interrupt that human security but you know that's the rare occasion most of it is actually going to be moving to tom barnett's idea that you have two militaries you know a leviathan that go in and take control uh, and then system builders who go in and establish that human security but it needs to be a human security without cultural baggage you don't try and make mini Australia. You don't try and make mini America. So if I'm sitting there in Tampa, I'm hoping I'm sitting there in a sort of David Kilcullen-esque way of having been through East Timor and gone, hang on, here's a population that desperately wanted modernity, sovereignty, and self-determination. Then we can help because they know who they want to be and who they want to be fits with our understanding of how the world works and what a nice world is but the reality is i don't think we ever had a clue and i don't think the afghans ever had a clue of what their nice world is going to be because they've never had it mm. 
So we certainly can't tell them what a nice world is. Sorry, I cut you off. No, 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 I I jumped in. I was just going to say, I think also from a military perspective, I mean, we get taught from day one at officer training establishments to uh, cascade our military mission from um, these Clausewitzian ideas of, of the military instrument being an extension of politics by another means. And yet in many of these environments in contemporary conflict, we're finding that that political goal is not clearly defined. And so it makes it very difficult and I think breeds in that separation between the military and the civil powers um, that we see manifest. And and your point about two armies, um, currently we've only got the Leviathan army and we do not have, I don't believe, uh, as joined up a a civil military. Yeah and, yeah, and so you get the hammer going in and it's seeing a bunch of nails and whacking them um, and, uh, yeah, the, there's a lag in terms of getting that, that human security bit in. Um, the Brits tried to do it. Um, Difford and um, uh, their Foreign Commonwealth Office made really good endeavours to try and align that joined-up approach, but I don't think we've cracked it yet. No, I, and this is the thing you've got to remember too, that Tom Barnett, briefed, I think it was US Navy, then the Pentagon on this in 1999. And he makes the point when he first briefed, you know, the Pentagon in 99, they just sat and glared at him. Like, what drugs are you on? Mm. So he was two years pre 9-11 because he'd watched Rwanda. He'd watched Srebrenica. He'd watched the debacle of the Balkans. and just gone... We're trying to use the Cold War hammer, and the only thing the Cold War hammer was ever going to be good for was tank battles in West Germany. <laughs> Which probably led to mutually assured destruction. Yeah, because that's all the hammer was for. The hammer was to stop us ever doing anything, and yet out on the periphery you had special operations commands becoming incredible at counterterrorism and at different levels becoming incredible at going in and supporting people to define their own futures so you know green berets you know what what's the motto for with and through you know you know, sort of with the locals for the locals and through the locals or whatever it, it converts to an by wish, yeah. yeah and you know again it's more of a mystery to me as an outsider um what's the squadron in the sas here called uh counter-revolutionary warfare it's gone by a number of names, but that kind of concept's pretty common across yeah. most of the, the SO organisations, yeah. So, yeah, again, if that's our name here, what it seems to me is they were always the most difficult humans to find because it wasn't 19-year-olds who went, yeah, what can I do in the next decade of my life? It was 25-year-olds going, I could be an amazing assaulter and it's not enough. And having that space to go, all right, a 25 will take you from being an amazing assaulter, will get you two or three languages, will qualify you as an advanced medic, will qualify you as an agronomist, and then will plop you out in the world helping people to help themselves for one-year chunks at a time. That's a mega investment, and uh, it's a wonderful book by Stephen Kotler called Stealing Fire where the book begins uh, with a SEAL Team 6, probably troop leader, I think he was, uh, describing an op where they're moving through a forest in Afghanistan up to the snow line, to a compound at the snow line to get a senior Taliban commander. And he's just watching his guys move through the forest and the snow, looking for, you know, IEDs, tripwires, everything, anything. And while one is looking left, one is looking right, one is looking up, one is looking down. By the time they wake this Afghan commander up, there's 12 seals in this guy's bedroom. And he's got this incredible realisation, we can't make these people, we just find them and empower them. What a waste we can't make more. Because the point he makes is that most people who make the seal teams and then go for selection for seal team six and don't make it, leave the Navy at the end of their next contract. Because if they can't make six, why do they want to stay? Mm. And this is the mega, mega problem of trying to do the kind of special operations that we're talking about here. You know, assaulters, we can find a reasonable number of, but these combined human security, 
counter-terrorism people, you know, that are one part of SAS. You know, the Green Bros is probably the biggest signal organisation, and even they seem to have lost their way in Afghanistan and doubled down on counter-terrorism. You know, when Jim Gant's career was destroyed in whatever it is, 2011, 2012, where he sort of smuggled his girlfriend into combat and he's out of his mind on alcohol and pills, this was probably not so good for the Green Beret cause. And, and I'd argue that um, the application of those kind of capabilities um, for a chronic period, you know, decade plus in that targeting sort of role, I think created a culture where we were championing that um, that kind of skill set. And so I think a lot of those, what would be called, I guess, softer approaches, what you've just described, the kind of classic hearts and minds type operations, um, were de-emphasized and there was an overemphasis on these direct action targeting missions. And I think a, a creep in terms of, of how they were employed from what you said right at the start to, to a very, uh, I guess, ruthless and effective but very infrequently used capability to something that was rolling out night after night on, one could argue, increasingly less important targets. Yeah, and if we go back to the hearts and minds thing, this is a great failure of the Western mindset, modern liberal democracies, and what modern liberal democracies have done to their special operations units. Special operations units aren't there to do hearts and minds. That's there for diplomats to do. You know, hearts and minds suggests that there is a cultural affinity between an elite unit and a population they're trying to help in a different country. That's too big an assumption. You're there to help people secure whatever world they want. So it's one thing Jim Gant, despite everything, got absolutely right. If you are not there to help the people on the ground secure the world they want, why would they ever trust you? Why would they ever learn from you? And how could you ever leave? You have to help them make their world secure. Because if it's helping people onto a path to our world, that's a 300-year path. That's going to cripple generations of elite young human beings and waste too much treasure. So, David, a lot of what we've been talking about is firmly in the domain of these wicked problems. We're talking about complexity. We're talking about large international complex problems. And uh, this is something that Tim and I find extremely fascinating. Uh, we think complex systems theory is a great lens through which to uh, try and make sense of the world. But what does complexity mean to you? How would you define complexity um, in terms of your, your complex problem-solving expertise? Um, I tend to go with Russell Ackoff's description because it's short. And that is there's messes, um, oh, what's this thing? Puzzles, problems, and messes. <laughs> so puzzle only has one answer and only one answer can work. Problems have a few answer and you can clearly see if they'll work because the problem can be defined and understood reasonably well. A mess is where you've got so many overlapping problems, you can't tease one out on its own and separate it from the rest of the problems and therefore deal with it in a way that can be dealt with forever because all the other problems will keep unpicking whatever you do. So I would argue that complexity is when you've got so many problems and they overlap that when you deal with the problem, you are only ever dealing with it temporarily. Mm. And you have to always be judging the impact you have on it by how you've then destabilized the other problems within the mess. I love, um, I mean, I use that term wicked problems very deliberately before. The, the original definition, I think, came out of the 70s. Um, Rittle and Weber, I think, were the, the um, uh, scientists that, that coined it. But their um, seminal paper also includes these 10 characteristics of wicked problems, and it's exactly what you've just described, things like uh, you can't find or you can't define the problem until you're already finding a solution. Uh, they have no stopping rule. They're all a symptom of another problem. I mean, that, that interrelatedness of these problems, the, the term mess is a great way of describing it. Yeah, and I like mess simply because you know when you're in a mess, the best you can do is clean it up a bit. Yeah? A mess is a mess is a mess, and you can improve the mess slightly. But at the end, you just have a different mess one where you've maybe got a better foothold on one chunk, but it's crawling across the floor in a different direction. 
So to expand on Tim's question before about um, solving the problems of 9-11 from Tampa, what kind of lenses, what kind of tools can we take to these complex problems? We speak a lot about uh, giving up this idea of finding a fail-safe plan. We borrow from Dave Snowden a bit in that respect. And um, I love the the idea of doing safe-fail experiments. This is Snowden's stuff as well, but his mm. methodology for probe sense response. So really um, reframing your approach that any intervention into a complex problem is just an experiment. We need to collect data and modify our, our hypothesis. Is that something that resonates with your thinking on this subject? Absolutely. To me, I think the biggest thing I've taken away is that everything needs to be iterative. You're working out how to act now to get more data and, if you're lucky, to improve the situation a little bit, to then iterate again to get more data and improve the situation a little bit. And I didn't have a word for it until Sean McFate wrote his most recent book, but to accept that we live in a world of durable disorder, as he would call it, where no major problem we face now can be solved, they can only be managed, and the management strategy is normally now going to vary from month to month to year to year, because nothing is stable enough anymore to keep applying the same solution. So how do we sell that as leaders? And I'm thinking particularly in a Western democratic society, uh, particularly in a contemporary one where we're reducing everything to sound bites, 140 characters. Um, essentially what we've said is we're not going to solve these, these global problems. How can we uh, reshape expectations uh, such that we can achieve some level of success in this sort of four-year electoral horizon? I think a big thing that has to change is you pitch to the political elite that we can help you manage problems. And if you talk about managing them and constantly adjusting to manage them, you can be seen as excellent leaders for just constantly adapting. But that's got to be the move. You're moving the political elite from, look what we achieved. No, you achieved the first step mm. and you've got a plan for the next five steps. And what makes that political elite unique is they do have a plan for the next five steps. And I, you know, it's a terrible thing to say, but once people have power, they tend to like it in the political setting. So I think the best thing those of us who understand complex problem solving can do is recognise we can help them to understand if you keep adapting, you can maintain the fact that you are the political elite in power. That we stop flip-flopping between two groups and instead if we have a group that are, you know, are genuinely adaptive, they're probably going to have longevity and in greater experience will come you know, greater quality of leadership. Hmm. So we're really selling their own success to them. So staying with leadership and decision-making, David, and whether we call it complex, whether we call it chaotic, what advice would you give for leaders, particularly, let's put a point on it, through this COVID-19 period where we talk a lot about making the least worst decision, but what advice would you give to leaders as they seek to navigate their organisation through this campaign? I suppose I'd ask about, you know, whether we want to talk about leadership at different levels. So within organisations, you know, doing that kind of safe to fail training and iteration is incredibly important. But if we actually look at, at a political level, we're at the point now where people were saying the world needed to change before COVID-19. And we weren't dealing with the environmental issues we weren't dealing with economic issues. We weren't dealing with demographic issues. We weren't really dealing with the fourth industrial revolution very well. And COVID-19 has given us a wonderful opportunity to genuinely change direction and do a better job. And one of the scariest things in that for leaders is you can have been trained to a set of techniques and beliefs that have hit their used by. And, you know, Stan McChrystal is a great military example of this. You know, the training he'd had that got him to be, you know, in charge of SOCOM in Baghdad in 2004 did not prepare him to, you know, work effectively in that environment as a leader. He fundamentally altered United States SOCOM, got them from Delta Force and SEAL teams doing a mission every two or three days to doing two missions a night, took counterterrorism to a level of industrialization changed forever the way intelligence is shared, 
changed forever the way partner organisations work together. And fundamentally, if we look at the way American Special Forces officers rolled out of SOCOM into MBAs, into Fortune 500 companies, we can really see that the gains in Fortune 500 companies post the GFC, I think, largely come from one group in particular. Mm. Those who come from... Sorry, you go. I was going to say the McChrystal Group's leveraging hard on that team of team models through this COVID-19, this decentralised execution, the same principles as Iraq, but making sure that people were in, are empowered to do things through this period where there's limited ability to supervise. Mm. But there's the, the bigger side to that that doesn't really get written about because it scares the crap out of civilian leaders, and that is you have failed. Your organization has failed. You are not winning, which is exactly where McChrystal was. And he makes the point more in uh, my share of the task, his, you know, his biography, than he does in Team of Teams. You know, in 2004, despite the most amazing people, they were losing. Mm. And to have to confront that reality and then just go, uh, clean sheet, take our ability to work well, but give up on our assumptions. So politically, we are at a point now where the most frightening thing to me in Australia at the moment is not how our government is doing. They're doing remarkably well. But that I'm not convinced they have a vision of what to do next because their entire career has been about knowing what to pitch at the population. Here is my long-term vision. It is a stable long-term vision. And yet now what we need from political leaders Rather than saying, here's the vision I've had from five years, don't you like the fact I'm consistent? We need political leaders to say, my vision doesn't work anymore, but I'm applying the best of my tools and the best of the skills of the people around me to come up with a better vision. And that's frightening because that's asking people to vote for something brand new and untested. Mm. And of course, the other thing that COVID, this current pandemic brings with it, that arguably we haven't seen for a long time is real adversity. Mm. Um, in a recent podcast, you made the case for adversity and reflected on the fact, I think you used the terms discipline and existential threat were, were real drivers for um, the ability to focus on complex change and, and to get some real wholesale uh, or to make a real wholesale difference. Do you see that coming potentially as a result of this pandemic? Um, it will depend how well we get it under control and what we do next. You know, if we get the virus coming back for winter Northern Hemisphere, winter next year here, and it's evolved, and, you know, the death rate is at 10 to 15%, not one and a half, that's game-changing and will probably actually change all our systems. The problem is at the moment we're doing a good job of controlling it we might go back to a local economy, a limited world of only a few countries we trust and just hunker down with a small view and a small way of being, but not fix enough stuff, which means we'll probably be relatively comfortable, but will we evolve enough for the next hit? You know, if you look in the last 15 years, SARS could have kicked off, MERS could have kicked off, Ebola could have kicked off. The reality is we've failed three times in 20 years. And we're lucky that this spreads fast, but that the death rate is mercifully low mm. relative to Ebola or SARS. So we've been lucky so far rather than brilliant. We, expanding on this concept of adversity, and, and I encourage listeners, we'll put a, a note in, in our show notes for the your podcast on that case for adversity, because I reckon it's fascinating from uh, an innovation perspective. But David, what are your thoughts on adversity as a prerequisite for happiness? We've got a, a sort of philosophy that there is no happiness without struggle, that you need to be overcoming something to achieve true happiness. Does that accord with your thinking? Absolutely. And I really wish the Western world would lose the word happiness. Because historically, the Greek word that uh, Aristotle gave us is eudaimonia. And eudaimonia best translates as flourishing. And guess what? People who flourish tend to be happy. People who aim to be happy tend not to flourish. 
So the best way to flourish is to keep testing yourself because the more you test yourself, the more you improve, the more you improve, the more you flourish, the more you flourish, the happier you tend to be. So adversity leads to flourishing, flourishing leads to happy, not the other way around. And competence comes from always being pushed that little bit beyond your normal level. Now, again, being blind, I just take adversity for being normal. I can't remember any part of my life where things weren't difficult being blind because I'm not willing to just sit and be bored and do a small thing, which makes everything reasonably difficult. And if I can cope with it, why is it so hard? So my premise is if adversity is just so naturally a part of your day and you know, at scale, we're not talking about a Spartan model of an eight throwing you out in the snow. Mm. We don't need that. But I do want to send 15-year-olds you know, with a reasonable amount of scouting training out on those exercises where they put up their own tent and they spend 24 hours on their own with not quite enough calories, enough water, and a journal and a pencil. I want them reflecting on the confidence that means that even though they don't enjoy this 24 hours, they're sure they can cope with it. And knowing that they go into whatever follows high school, knowing they are already competent. I don't want it to be something that's being built in militaries for a minority of the population. I want it to be something that's built into populations so that we can genuinely flourish en masse with a greater sense of shared cohesion in discomfort and knowing that everyone around you knows what it is to be a little bit uncomfortable, to be a little bit tolerant, and to at the end of it realise, gee, doesn't it go better when we deal with discomfort together? rather than alone and i think from an individual level we take our sort of philosophy for this podcast from a couple of poems one of which is james elroy flicker's golden road to samarkand which um an excerpt of which is inscribed on the clock tower in the the 2-2 special air service regiment barracks and this idea of we are the pilgrim's master we shall go always a little further that incrementalism that concept of a little mm. further as a fundamental philosophy for your life that um you know you've achieved this far use that as the basis to take that next step and what you've just described i think is is really core to that that you need some level of adversity some level of discomfort and the ability to overcome that and then reflect on it and and reflect on the fact that you you can do this and that the next novel problem may not be so world-ending. Yeah, and that reflection really is the missing link in a world of permanent entertainment, of your permanent Netflix binging. The real positive that could come out of COVID-19, if not anything else, is that people get bored and stop entertaining themselves and start actually just sitting and reflecting. When I can go outside again, what am I going to do that's more meaningful than shopping? (laughs) <laughs> well, David, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I think what we've discussed has given us a lot to reflect on. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for your time and your, your insights. Thank you very much for the opportunity of talking to the two of you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, David. Cheers. I stand outside in the rain. I feel it burn my skin. Or shouldn't it cool me down? And not hurt me I look at the people inside I want to be like them Or should it really be so hard for me? And I hate myself for feeling like this Why can't my mind just stop? So deep they cannot see 
They're probably thinking bad of me For not trying But I try so hard Why can't they not see inspired by people who are doing things bigger than themselves and know how tough it can be for those who volunteer and run charities. If this is you, we'd love to spread the word to the Unforgiving 60 community by advertising your cause on an episode for free. Just complete the short charity fact sheet on our website, www.unforgiving60.com, and we will do the rest. And while we have you, thank you for your selflessness.